Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, I just want people (laughs) to really understand how far we have come, but also how far we've, we've pulled apart. And over the past few weeks, um, I've written about a couple of things and tried to talk about some things on the other half of my podcast when I don't have when I have a guest. But I really just haven't said what I needed wanted to say about a lot of stuff. Or maybe I have, but I feel I need to say some more, right? Because I'm watching some some interesting trends. Um, I won't say disturbing because to me, if you say that something is disturbing, it's really giving it more power than it needs. Um, to whichever side wants to claim that power, right? I mean, there's typical stuff that goes on. There's typical arguments. But, you know, I think that we have to come to a realization that America is divided to a point where we have to learn how to navigate it before it heals itself. Most historians will say that the last time Americans were this divided, you can look at the 1840s and 1850s and the politics, especially 1850s, that decade led to the country literally fighting itself in what we call a civil war. for five years. And it's really, really sad to note that many of those historians feel that's where we're we're trending toward. Now I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that the United States of America in the 21st century will take up arms against itself. And maybe I'm naive in that thought. But that's where I am. I just think 
at some point, someone or some group of people will be able to navigate the political process and stitch together some semblance of the quorum respecting unity that will keep the country whole. Now, part of the reason why I feel that I'm naive about that is I don't really see a lot of people emerging. There were some people almost 20 years ago that were watching these dynamics and were trying to start groups. So a lot of those people were like in their 20s. So now they're middle age or in their 40s wondering what happened why didn't what we were trying to do stick why was it hard for us to build a movement that would bring the country closer together rather than push it apart. The easy answer is we're fallible human beings. And wherever our weakness is, people tend to illuminate that. People tend to highlight that and take advantage of it. In a country where a good number of the people that live in the country don't, could not, cannot find their state on a map, is vulnerable to all sorts of attacks and misinformation. Let me repeat that. In a country where an overwhelming number of people cannot find their own state on a map, is vulnerable to misinformation. It means something in the United States of America when you rank us in the world on education, that we're not in the top 10. most cases, we're not in the top 20 when it comes to just basic things like math and reading comprehension and literacy and geography, right? We just, we just don't, not as good at that. And we seem to have taken an approach toward educating ourselves that is more important than being educated. And there are some reasons for that. I think one of the main reasons is that 
our education system has gotten, and, I, and when I say education system, I mean K through 12. Our education system has gotten to the point where we really just wanted to train people to work instead of enlightening them to live. Our most responsible job is to educate our children and to help them develop their minds where they can be independent thinkers and creators, doers, movers, shakers, whatever term you want to use. And I believe we failed in that. I think we were more obsessed with making sure that we had enough people that could be gainfully employed and continue to build our capitalist machine rather than building our capitalist machine with innovation. So in other words, instead of innovation, we resorted to subjugation. We wanted our people just to be competent enough to work. And I think that has contributed a lot to why our political discourse and our our leadership base is so weakened and easily corruptible and resorts to demagoguery to maintain power. And let me be clear. When I say resort to demagoguery, it's not a one-sided affair. Now, I'm, I'm always critical and will always be critical of the demagoguery that supports white supremacy. I will never bow down to that. No matter what it will cost me personally or whatever, I cannot allow, as long as I have a voice, I cannot allow these these ideas that white people are better than us and they should be in control. And that's the way the country was designed and that's the way it should always be. I will never allow that voice to be unchallenged ever because it's wrong. Historically, that may have been the intent, but it was a game changer once you brought those first slaves over in 1619. It was a game changer when you allowed people from all over the world to come. Their huddled masses yearning to be free. It changed. And so numerically, people who are not white males are going to be in the majority. 
It is what it is. So just like in South Africa, when the masses of people made a decision that since they're the majority, they should at least have a say-so in their government, let alone run it. That's a natural trend. That's not revolutionary. It's natural. And in a fair world, that's the way it's supposed to be. But we've got white people that say, well, what was in South Africa was totally unique. Is it, though? Right? Is the rhetoric that the Afrikaners were expressing against people like Nelson Mandela and others, is it any different than what we're hearing on our news channels today? Is it any different than the rhetoric we hear our politicians saying today? Not really. Because demagoguery is demagoguery and white supremacy is white supremacy and demagoguery toward white supremacy is what it is. But we, we've got it in other places too. And it's, it's detrimental because you have some people who hear demagoguery and are activated. And then you hear people who hear demagoguery and they become apathetic. When a group of people, especially black people in the United States, when they constantly hear this rhetoric that's out there and they and they see that rhetoric being rewarded more oftentimes than it's being rebuked, there's a historical bias within our community that's like, it's the same old, same old. No matter what happens, it's never going to change. They're always going to change the rules. They're always going to do X, Y, and Z. They're always going to get away with it. Case in point. So we still have people that haven't even gone to trial yet that marched on the Capitol building on January 6th of last year, 2021. We have even had some people be let go. We had individuals who were indicted for trying to kidnap a United States governor. One person was totally acquitted. Everybody else was a hung jury. And this wasn't a state case. This was a federal case. Where the federal case is pretty have a pretty good track record of convictions, but they couldn't get a conviction on people who threatened to kidnap a governor. 
But in New York State, a black elected official, the lieutenant governor, has been indicted. He's had to resign. He'll probably get convicted because he probably did what he did, just like the folks that threatened to kidnap the governor. And somewhere down the road, one of those guys will either become an elected official, maybe in his local community, maybe in a state position like a legislator. But that black guy, his career is over. Right? And my point is, if his career is over, so should theirs. But the key thing is, you, you know, they weren't convicted and he was. Well, he hasn't even been to trial yet. He's just been indicted. Let me change that. But him being indicted is pretty much so what. And we have seen black elected officials pretty much as so what. So the question becomes in black people's minds is that fair? Well, it's the system we're in, right? So people have a mindset, well, the system is skewed for them as opposed to us. So why would we engage in a political process that supports that system? And then you have demagoguery that's going around now. On the flip side, that's really trying to determine how authentic a black person is. And and the, the reason why we're having this discussion is about money that we haven't gotten and we may not even get. Right? So there are groups of people who believe that not every black person should get a reparations check. Okay. And their argument is if they are immigrants from Africa or the islands or whatever, that they shouldn't get that because their ancestors were not impacted by slavery. And those who are descendants of American slavery should get it. Now, it's an interesting argument because even the folks that are pushing this idea say 90% of African-Americans living in this country qualify to get a check. So we're talking about a division of one out of every 10, right? And it's not a bad argument to have. But it is an argument. And arguments lead to division. And so there are people who have 
gone against them, who are basically trying to paint them as fringe individuals. As a matter of fact, they're trying to paint those folks in the same brush as we look at the insurrectionists, right? And I don't think that's fair. I think that it's an argument or as a discussion rather we need to have once we actually have the wheels in place that is actually going to happen because we actually need to discuss. And that's only really if you're talking about getting a check. Because if you really want to get a discussion about reparations, the question becomes, do we get a check that'll be our personal discretion, how we utilize that money? Or do we figure out a strategy to get the government that sanctioned the chattel slavery? to go into these communities that have been impacted generationally, not only from slavery, but from Jim Crow, right? Because that's where the other argument comes in. It's like, well, if you're just going to limit the atrocity to slavery, then it's basically exonerating the 150 years of black codes and Jim Crow that came after slavery. There's a lot of black folks that don't want to give up a pass on that, right? And those of us who agree with that shouldn't be labeled as part of the problem because my parents were more impacted by Jim Crow than they were slavery. Slavery created the inequities, but Jim Crow exacerbated them. Public policy by governments made it worse on black folks once they were freed. So put that in context, right? So when we were enslaved, we were chattel. When we were initially freed, you know what they called us? contraband if we showed up as an escaped slave during the war to a union camp because we were identified as property by both the north and the south then when we showed up we were identified not as an escaped human being, we were identified as contraband property that the Union Army had taken possession of from its Southern Confederate owner. Hence the term contraband schools. And there's a place in um, in Mississippi um, that has actually preserved the, uh, I want to say New Albany, but I may be getting it wrong, but it's, it's a city 
in Mississippi that actually has a historical, historically preserved contraband school. If you want to check that out, right? Or you can look that up. So from the period of time that we went from being enslaved to being contraband, and then eventually freedmen, right? Primarily after the war ended, there was always a backlash toward us attaining that freedom, which I think is just as atrocious maybe not as physically and, and 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 then I'd say it is physically because that's when all the the lynchings really happened right especially after the reconstruction period at one little oasis we had where we got to exert some political power and got to exert some financial power it was all eliminated because of public policy so my argument to those folks who want to limit the reparations allocation to just slavery, I think we're, we're, it would be an injustice to those men and women who did not personally endure slavery, but endured Jim Crowism. I think the United States needs to pay for that as much as enslaving us. And, you know, but we can have that discussion. But in the meantime of having the discussion, let not our argument become demagoguery and start berating other Black people who may not agree with concepts and those black people who choose to serve in public service automatically labeling them as uncle toms or sellouts i think it's a cop-out when you just label people that and not really challenge them as to why they do what they do but just accept it and try to exile them you can't exile black people. Black people can't exile other black people. Not in the political discourse. You don't have that luxury because you're all going to get lumped in together from whoever you're challenging. And nobody on our side of the argument has more cachet than the other. Because we're reminded a lot that at one time we were all Republicans. Now we're all, we're, most of our votes, not the overwhelming majority, are Democratic, right? Black women, especially. And that gets into a whole nother discussion I want to finish up on on the other side. But I think in order for us to deal with the demagoguery of white supremacy, we got to deal with with the democratic demagoguery within. 
we've got to be careful about how we label each other, how we go after each other, how we make our arguments to persuade each other. Because I think if we don't put a handle on it, then we don't really have the moral authority to challenge other folks when they do it to us. But again, most of my politics is based on an altruistic viewpoint. So I still believe that people will actually make an effort to correct that. But again, it is what it is. I mean, people will probably attack me for saying what I just said. It is what it is. But I just believe we can do better. And I believe we have to do better amongst us so we can go after the real enemy and defeat it. So we'll do that. I'll leave you with that and then we'll, we'll catch y'all on the other side. And so we're back. So I ended talking about demagoguery, right? And I, I think it's it's something that we have to be really, really careful about again. Especially now. I think and and I've and I may have touched on this before I probably have but I feel kind of compelled to cuz based on some of the demagoguery on both sides I feel kind of compelled to talk about who's in the crosshairs of a lot of stuff And I feel that that black men, I mean, black women, I'm sorry, that black women are the main political target right now. I think that we've been watching an incredible... resurgence of black women assuming leadership roles, especially in the political sense. And we have seen our community rally around that. We have seen uh, a black woman become vice president of the United States. We have seen a black woman now become nominated 
and appointed to the United States Supreme Court. And and the reason why I bring it up because there were there were some people that were part of the the latter demographic. I was talking about those black people who wanted to find other black people, right? Were basically just calling them sellouts, those sisters, because they're the vice president of the United States and about to be associate justice on the Supreme Court, just on that premise that they are part of the system. And it just hurts me because I don't know what kind of respect you have for the people that fought and died for that moment to happen. There were a lot of black women, Dorothy Hyde, Ella Baker, um, you know, just uh, Miss Boykin, Fannie Lou Hamer. They were just black women all over the place that really, really did a lot of the work that would allow these moments to happen. And I think when we start labeling people because we don't necessarily agree with their career choices or their philosophy of how they want to enact change in America, I think we, we, we're, we're diminishing the very argument that we try to present to, or the challenge that we try to present to those who don't want us in anything. And, and it's bad enough that we saw white supremacists, right? Target these black women and not just those two, any of them that want to run. There's like five running for governor. There's at least two I know running for the United States Senate. There's a bunch running for Congress. That every chance they get, they're going to go after them strictly because they are a black woman. Have nothing to do with whatever their qualifications are, whatever their ideology is. Because it's legitimate when you have political debates to go after political positions. That's fair. But if the attack is strictly based on what they look like, what their gender is, that falls under demagoguery to me. That that puts people on the crosshairs for no reason. But then we turn around and you look at where we are in our community. And if we're not putting the crosshairs on them, we're helping spot them so the crosshairs can get them. And people have the right to to do what they want to do and say what they want to say. That's the beauty of America, people have a right to say what they want to say. 
But people often forget that the right that gives you <laughs> the ability to say what you want to say also gives other people the ability to disagree with that. That's why in the context as it's written, you have freedom of speech and freedom of expression. You can say something and I have a right to express my agreement or displeasure toward what you said. And I even have the right to speak for or against it. And for those of us who disagree with each other, that doesn't, there's nothing constitutional says that you have to dehumanize the person that you disagree with. There's no constitutional right to do that. There's no spiritual right to do that. People do it, but they don't have a right to it. So when, whether it's Kamala Harris or Candace Owens, you want to call them Cuffies, Coons, whatever, you have a right to say that. You have a right to express your opinion about that. I just think that you should be more articulate with it. And I also think that They have a right to disagree with that. And people do. And and I guess it's just it's just really, really sad that we have this block of voters that have basically by just circumstance has developed to be the block that tries to push for things that are beneficial for the community as a whole, not just the black community, but the American community as a whole. And that block, as we stand in history right now, are black women. When you look at most of the people that are running for office and pushing for ideas and leading groups, activist groups, whether you agree with their actions or not, they're out there. And we as a community have to be mindful of how we deal with that. Again, if you don't agree with a political position, have an intellectual debate about it. But if on the one hand, you're getting attacked because you're black, on the other hand, you're getting attacked because you're trying to fight white people by interacting with them. It's kind of a no-win situation. And black men have dealt with it a long time. And a lot of times, what, what people don't understand about the movement was that there was a lot of internal discrimination about that, that women were set back. Now, there was some strategy behind it, too. 
because if you're if you're going against a male dominated society who subjugates their own women it's hard pressed to present to them other than to really kind of thumb their nose at it our women to be the leaders and our men just kind of sit back in the in the threshold of the 50s and 60s if you've ever watched mad men and all that stuff that's really kind of like how people interacted back then especially in the white community they would only respond to a male figure from an opposite viewpoint to counteract it what we did, however, majority of folks was that the sisters may not have been the most vocal out front, not all of them, there's a few, but they were in the room when they were making decisions. Now, as history tells us it may have been only one or two as opposed to an even balance, but there were sisters in the room strategizing, plotting helping ways to battle the civil rights movement. And they're finally getting their due, right? But now we're at a time where the strongest voice needs to be heard. And what has emerged is the strongest voices as of now are black women. And if you haven't picked up on that, then you probably really haven't been paying attention, which is fine. But I think if you're going to be critical about it, then you really need to pay attention. So I'm just uncomfortable with the way that we are going about our dialogue. We know how we react when white people come at us. And it doesn't matter if they're liberals or conservatives. We know how it feels when they come at us. We know how we react to that. Some very, very angry, and some of us, we might throw a microaggression back at them, right? But we react to it, and it's not pretty for the most part. And for the most part, we kind of deal with it more than them because we internalize it more than we express it. So imagine what it's like when your own people are jumping you. You know, and and I get it. If you don't want to be part of the of the 
system, if you don't want to vote, if you don't want to participate in political discussions and all that, it is what it is. I mean, if you live in the United States, whether you vote or not, the decisions that elected officials make will impact you. I'm of the opinion that I want to either be one of the people making the decision or I am going to make sure that I have a say so in who are the people that make that decision. That's me. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that or doesn't I don't give value to the argument that because those of us who do participate in the system, those of us that do vote, those of us that do run for office, those of us that actually serve in office are selling black people out. I'm not down with that. I don't agree with my conservative counterparts on a lot of stuff. But as you've heard me say, I have gotten to the point in my life where I'm not trying to call them out their name. I think everybody, when they're younger and they're learning how to communicate, say the wrong things. But as the Apostle Paul said, it's like when you were a child, you thought like a child. But when you become a man, or a woman, you put away childish things, right? That's especially when it comes to communication. And I think people mistake political correctness as some kind of weakness when it's actually maturity. If you know better, you do better. That applies to everything in life except politics, it seems like, or political speech, to be more specific. So if we have to use acronyms to describe political groups, so be it. So if we can't say certain words that we grew up saying in the playground, now that we're adults, we have to say something else, so be it. Put away childish things. So when we resort to politics and name calling, that's childish. <laughs> when we resort to politics of shaming, it's childish. Because that's what we did in the playground. That's that's how we rolled. And it seems as though that when we're doing stuff, because we couldn't be elected officials when we were children. So now that we are doing something that we can only do as adults, then we should put away childish things. Period. And I think our rhetoric needs to be higher than our fourth graders. I think our rhetoric needs the sophistication and the intelligence that God gave all of us. I think it warrants that. And I and I I'm really sensitive about 
I just I don't like it when we really go after each other. Because I think I'm just one of those people that I saved my moments in dealing with black people in their face, in the room where we could have that free discussion where the public wasn't involved in how we handled our business. Just like you don't want strangers showing up at the family reunion starting stuff or coming to your house starting stuff, right? Whatever you got to deal with in your house, you deal with it in the house. And then when you go outside, that's that part's over with. You're dealing with whatever's on the outside now, right? Or at least you present a united front when you step out the door. That's just me. And maybe I'm wrong with that. But I don't, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have debates and arguments amongst us, but it should be amongst us. That's just me. We put it out there in the street. It's a problem. And I say that as somebody that has been guilty of doing that at times and getting frustrated. And you, but you learn from those things because the reality is, is that the only way we can truly destroy, demolish, eviscerate white supremacy is that we have to be a united front, no matter how much fighting we've had internally, we go up against that BS. We've got to be as strong as possible to do it. I don't believe we can be in a cocoon and just hope that it passes over us. That's not going to happen. There's no black Passover. That's not going to happen. We have to confront it. And the stronger we are to confront it, the better. If black women and black men are side by side fighting it, it's better. Now, when we say BIPOC, black, indigenous, and other people of color, right? White supremacy hits all of that. But I'm, I'm not an indigenous person in the sense that I would impart the original nations of North America. I am not Hispanic. I'm not Asian. I'm black. And I, as a black person, that that tries to be a student of history that has engaged in the political system, I'm tired of white supremacy. I'm tired of it. I don't have any tolerance for it. I don't have any tolerance for people to try to espouse it. I don't care if you're trying to sugarcoat it or you just flat out wearing a robe and carrying a burning cross on your back. I'm not for it. And I'm, I, I don't have a tolerance for it anymore. And I don't have the lifespan to try to tone that down. I have dealt with it long enough. So my voice about that is pretty clear and pretty strong. And I cannot be distracted. 
So when I see black men attacking black women and black women attacking black men based on money we ain't got or street corners we don't own or drugs that we don't bring into the country or guns that we don't manufacture or basketball courts we don't even own, barely maintain. I ain't got, I don't have time for distractions. <laughs> I don't. I have time for action. I'm down for whatever strategy we're going to use to defeat white supremacy, but I'm not into the distractions that divide us. I'm just not. And you know, if that is your hustle or that is your claim to fame or however you feel the way that you have to express yourself, so be it. I'm just telling you, I don't have the time for that. I am for the complete eradication of white supremacy in America because I can't control what happens in Europe. Can't control what happens in Ukraine. I can't control what happens in Russia. I can't control what happens in any other, in Australia or any other part of the globe where white people are dominant. I, I can't. Canada even, right? And if you don't think there's racism in Canada, then... <laughs> That's a whole nother discussion, right? But I don't have time for any of that. Argentina, any any place else. All I have time for in the time that I'm allotted is to deal with the end of white supremacy in America, period. Now, I don't care how uncomfortable white people get about that, where regardless of what our relationship status is, that's my mission. That's the the reason why I, I started this podcast. I do other things. I try to bring other information. I do deal in the world of politics. So it's more than just that particular crusade. But the but to me, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this show can be dealt with if we end that. Period. So that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. That's why I'm expressing myself to where I'm not trying to be. Well, I guess I am being critical, but I'm not trying to be destructively critical. I'm trying to be constructive. And if people take it another way, I, I'm sorry that you take it that way. I want us to be careful. I want us to be cautious as well as courageous. I want strong black men and women to speak up. I want them to lead. I want them to organize. I want them to encourage people to challenge what we are dealing with because now is the time to do it. It's always been now. It's been now since those first 20 brothers and sisters got off that boat in Jamestown. It's always been now. But even more so, it's pressing. 
because in 1619, they didn't have the internet. 1619, they didn't have a phone that could do more than just call people. 1619, they didn't have the ability to travel by plane or train or bus or car to organize. They didn't have all that. We do. They didn't have television or radio or newspapers. Yes, they didn't even have newspapers. But we have. And we have the intellect and the ability to utilize all of that to defeat something that should have been defeated from his infant stage. Or at least should have been defeated once we started gathering the political power to organize and to challenge it. 400 years is a long time to deal with evil. It's a long time to deal with evil. It's 40 generations of people that have had to put up with that. 40. Now is the time to stop it. And the only way we can do it is that we have to be careful how we articulate what we do. And you can call me all sorts of names and whatever based off that. That's fine. It proves my point. Because whatever negative energy you put on me is not toward the evil that is white supremacy. So that makes my point. You can say I'm not relevant, and that's fine. But until you go after white supremacy, you're not relevant either. The reality is that the biggest problem we have in America right now is this mindset. It is driving the division in our politics, internally and externally. It is the biggest problem, not COVID, <laughs> not anything. The biggest problem we have in America is white supremacy, period. And until we stop it, until we make it at least at a point where it's totally unpopular to do it, where it's like you feel like it's a crime to even think that, we're going to continue to have all of the other societal woes that we have to deal with and all the other side issues that we're going to have to deal with. So I'm committed to ending it. If that puts me in the crosshairs. If that puts me in the target of demagogues, so be it. Until next time.